The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. When I graduated from 8th grade, I received two graduation gifts, one from each parent. One parent gave me a Sony Walkman. This was in the days back before the MP3 player, so it was a tape player, actually. Sony Walkman, and I got two tapes. Phil Collins' Genesis Band and Dire Straits, if you know those two groups. That was what one parent gave me. The other parent gave me a book, the biography of Harry Truman, and a long letter detailing some of my personal character traits, some of my strengths and my weaknesses, and explained to me how Truman would be a good model for me to follow, would be helpful for me in refining some of these traits. One of those gifts was easy to receive. The benefits were immediately obvious and quite pleasurable. The other gift, at least at first, I didn't quite get. You put yourself back in eighth grade and you figure out which was which. <laughs> As we come to the close of Ephesians chapter 2, we come to a conclusion and a summary about something that is a gift to us, but oftentimes is at first one of those kind of hard-to-get gifts. Something that's kind of hard to figure out. The church. So we're going to talk about this morning. But first, let me set some of the context. You'll recall that back in verse 11, we saw that Paul began a little bit of a shift in his focus. Prior to that, he'd been focusing particularly on the sovereign work of God in individuals' lives, bringing them to faith in Christ. But then at verse 11, he shifted his focus a little bit. And he moved from focusing on individuals to groups in particular, two large groups, the Jews and the non-Jews, the Gentiles. Those Gentiles, as he paints the picture, those Gentiles, most if not all of us here, were in a hopeless situation. Far off from the people of God. Far off from hope. Without God and without hope in this world. But in Christ and at his cross, God grabbed hold of the hands of the clock of redemptive history and decisively moved them. Things changed dramatically. In Christ, he made a way. He made one new man out of two. He brought them back together. He made a way for people to acquire access to God again. You see, all of the covenants of promise in Israel had been pointing forward towards one great promise, the Messiah. And when he came, he changed everything. He accomplished dramatic work. We saw verse 15 where he abolished the law, that which divided the Jews and the Gentiles. He abolished that law, said, done, paid, finished to that old covenant and brought in a new one. He inaugurated a new covenant in his blood. So we saw that last week in verses 14 to 18, Christ made a way for there to be peace between people and peace between people and God. He did that by making in himself one new man. Remember that orange Lego man? That one new man from the two? He brought in people from the Jews and people from the Gentiles, and he put them together and made one new man. And so we saw in verse 18 that through him, through Christ, we both, believers from the Jews and from the Gentiles, 
We both, and in fact we all, all true believers in Christ through the Spirit have access to the Father again. Through Christ, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, all have equal access to God. Verse 19 then, Consequently, so then, since you Ephesian Gentiles and you Utah Gentiles, and in fact all true believers, since through Christ you have access to God, there's a conclusion coming up here. And what 19 to 22 is, is the facts of that conclusion. So we're going to be looking at this morning. Some of the facts that flow out of Paul's argument in 11 to 18. We're going to be looking at the content of this. And by the end, I hope that you will have grasped and been grasped by Paul's intent behind the content. You see, there's always intent in the Bible. The content is not there just so that we'll know more things. There's an intent. Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants something to come of this. And I'm persuaded that what he wants to happen this morning is this main point. He wants you to turn your heart towards the new house of God. Don't just learn more details about it, but turn your heart towards the new house of God. Turn your affection toward it. Give special attention to it. Work hard at becoming fully involved in the entity in which God has chosen to make His dwelling, the church. It may be a gift that is at least at first a little hard to get sometimes. Certainly was for me in my past and still is from time to time. Hard to actually get, hard to understand, hard to connect with the church. It may be that, but it is God's house, His dwelling, and it is meant to be a blessing to you and to others. So turn your heart towards it. Turn your affection towards it. Now this morning, we're going to see this passage uses a number of different metaphors. It's going to talk about a country with citizenship, a household, a family, a structure, a temple, and I'm using the word house as kind of like an umbrella term to catch all those metaphors. And what we're going to see this morning, we're going to look at three specific things about this house, three building specifications, if you will. That's how I'm going to unfold this passage this morning. But first, let me read it. I'm going to begin in verse 18 so as to get the lead in into this conclusion. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. For through him, that is Christ, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Verse 18 says that through Christ in the Spirit, we that new man have access to God. 
The whole of the one triune God is involved here. Father, Son, and Spirit. And the end result is that believing Jews and believing Gentiles together get God. So we saw last week. You, no matter which group you started in, no matter which of these two groups you start in, you, by faith, together, are joined together, and by faith you have full access to God. So then, verse 19, consequently then, it should be obvious. Look what happens here. You Ephesian Gentiles, and every other Gentile, you are fully in. If you've got access to God, if you've got God, you're fully in. You're not held out in any particular way. You're not on the fringe anymore. God's new house consists of a specific people. That's the first specification. God's new house consists of a specific people, and praise the Lord, it is you. That's the point he's making here in the first verse. If you got God, you're fully in. Not everybody has that privilege. These groups have been joined together. But it's people from those groups, not everybody in those groups. You have a great privilege. You didn't used to have this. You individually and you corporately used to be far off, he's saying. But now you've been brought close and you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer strangers, tourists, if you will. People who are just visiting. They need a a tourist visa to even be in the place. They clearly are just passing through. They don't really even know what's going on. They're not part of the people. You're not a stranger anymore, nor are you an alien. Aliens, resident aliens, people who've put down some roots in a society, they live there, they're attached, they're not just visiting briefly, but they need a, they need a residence visa, or they need a student visa, or a work visa, or something like that. Aliens need resident or work visas. Tourists need tourist visas. The point is they both need visas because they're not natural. They're not in their own country and everybody knows it. That's not you anymore. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are instead fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. You have been made full citizens, equal in every way, you're really, you're fully, really, completely, equally, totally, entirely in there. Equal with all of the saints, those in the past and those in the present. You are in the household of God fully. Now, Paul clearly sees this as a privilege. He's announcing it to them as if it's a privilege, a blessing. What exactly does it mean? Well, first let's consider what it does not mean. It does not mean that the Gentiles became Jews. Saw that last week as well. God has taken believers from among the Jews, those red Legos, and believers from among the Gentiles, the yellow Legos, and he made an orange man in the middle. The yellow did not become red. You didn't become Jews. That's not how it happened. I need to throw in here, as an aside... There are a number of other questions, a number of other theories, and a number of other passages that we could look to or discuss that would explain more about this relationship between Israel and the church. I'm not going to talk about any of that this morning. It's a big subject. If you want to talk about that later, we can. I'm skipping over all that. For now, it's important to notice this. What verse 19 doesn't mean 
is that the Gentiles became Jews, or that the Jews became Gentiles. doesn't mean that. But it does clearly and certainly mean that in every other way, the Gentiles have found full access to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It clearly means that. They're not second-class citizens in relationship to God. They are fully there, equally, Gentile and Jew alike. We did not become Jews, but we are full citizens with all the saints, part of the one household of faith, the one household of God. We are full members of God's family, His household, the group of people. A household is a group of people that lives under one's authority, under their protection and in their service. Now, historically, a household could include slaves and workmen, anybody who's under the protection and authority of the head. So let's be clear, the context is certainly pointing out that we are not slaves, that we're not workmen, we're not second-class citizens in some way. We're fully in the household of God, Jew and Gentile alike. God has one household. There is one citizenship. There is one new man. God's new house consists of a specific people. And if you have placed faith in Christ, you are in it fully. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, whether you are American or Sudanese, whether you are German or French, whether you are male or female, whether you are an introvert or an extrovert, whether you are an Old Testament saint or a New Testament saint, there's one household. We're all joined together here. One family. Christ has made peace between you and other people and he's made peace between that one new man and between you and God. That's the church universal. And the application of that here for us is the church local. That's who we are. We're one body. He has given you back the church. He's given you the church. He's given you back community and fellowship with people. And a lot of times, we want to look at that gift and say something like, Gee, thanks, I think. I might actually have preferred one of those personal one-on-one relationships with you, Jesus. Particularly the more I look around here. But that wasn't the gift. I've been kind of hammering away on this unity, this one, this family. Because that's the gift. You've been given to a group, and a group has been given to you. Family of God can sometimes be one of those hard-to-receive gifts. Now, I know that there are some here this morning who regard this group right here as your dearest, closest family. We heard testimony to that last Sunday night when we all gathered for our Thanksgiving meal and several people said that very thing. Praise the Lord for that work that He's done in your life. But for others here this morning... And I have to admit, for me even sometimes, for others here this morning, fellowship with the church often feels a little bit like duty and not quite so much like a blessing. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you with something. I know that it's hard to look through all the small talk and the petty arguments that sometimes happen. It's hard to look past that. And then it's hard to actually break into some social circle because everybody's kind of cliquish sometimes. and Everybody already has their pre-existing friendships. And then sometimes even when you get into it, you find that the people aren't exactly quite like you and maybe don't quite like the same things that you like. 
can be hard to connect to this specific people, a peculiar people, if you will. And if that is you this morning, let me encourage you. First, if you are a genuine believer, verse 19 says that you are a member of this family. You may be visiting, you might not be a member of this family, but you're a member of the family of God. God's language is interestingly very, very frequently collective. Do you notice things like family and body and assembly? That's what the church, word church literally means. These words are all collective. They're group words. And what I want to encourage you with is actually a question that I hope to probe your thinking with. Why did God give you to a collective? Why did he just save you and send you on solo? He put you in a family, in a group, for a reason. I'm not asking why did he make the church. We'll talk about that in the third point this morning. But why did he put you in a group? Now, as I'm looking at it, there's really only two ways to break this down. Ultimately, he put you in a group to curse you or to bless you. At the bottom level, that's the two ways it can break down. Now, this section here in chapter 2 and on into chapter 3 is going to be explaining a lot of things about the church. And it's setting us up for what's going to follow in chapters 4, 5, and 6, a whole bunch of commands about how you're supposed to act in the church. And if your perspective is one of kind of the glass being half empty, if you're more inclined to look at this as a curse, you probably wouldn't use that word, but as maybe like a burden or a difficulty or a gift that's hard to receive. If you're kind of inclined to look at it this way, you're going to get a lot of evidence to support your conclusion in 4, 5, and 6. You're going, to, you're going to be reading there and you're going to find out, man, there are a lot of things I have to do here. He expects me to fully give my whole self to this group, to sacrifice for it, to love it, to love the people, even the hard ones, to love them. That's going to be pretty hard. That's a lot of duty. If you're inclined to look at it half empty and as a curse, you're going to find evidence. But, on the other hand, if you've been listening along since chapter 1, verse 3, you, you will recall that God there says that he's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you've read that, and if you have a genuinely converted heart, when you hear yourself beginning to talk to yourself like this, you should stop. You should talk to yourself and say, Stop! God does not curse me. God does not curse his children. Even when he brings things into our lives that are sometimes hard or painful, his end goal is never that they be a curse or a punishment to us. His end goal is that they be a blessing to us, even through the hardship. I'm thinking right now this is a curse. Stop. That is not true. Talk to yourself and say that to yourself. He has given me every spiritual blessing in Christ, and one of the spiritual blessings he's given me is this group is a membership in access to this body. Full citizenship with all of its privileges and its obligations. By faith then, talk to yourself, by faith then, I say no to this and yes to this, and I will embrace this gift as a blessing to me. I'll embrace it as a blessing based on the nature of God that he doesn't curse and based on the fact that he's done a remarkable work, chapters 1, 2, and on into 3, done a remarkable work to give me access to this group, 
I don't think he would do that to punish me. Based on what he's done and based on his character, say, by faith I embrace it as a blessing to me. I'm going to take it, I'm going to turn my heart to it, I'm going to give myself to it, and I'm going to pray for eyes to see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter 1, verse 18. In other words, I'm going to pray, pray, pray that God would help me see how richly glorious the church is to him and how much it can become that to me. That kind of change in perspective is possible, by the way. It happened in my life. It can happen in yours, too. So I encourage you, ask yourself, if you look at it kind of as a gift that's hard to receive, ask yourself, does he bless me or curse me? What's his modus operandi? And then by faith, embrace the church. Take it as your own. Give yourself to it. Paul thinks it's a privilege that you've been included in this. Turn your heart towards it. Give yourself to it in service, in money, in relationships. Pray for eyes to see. The first building specifications, the new house of God, consists of a specific people, you and you individually. Turn your heart towards it. It's a blessing to you that you've been fully given access, fully brought in to this community. God's new house is built with a specific people. Our second specification concerns the foundation. It's in verse 20. God's new house has a specific foundation. God's new house has a specific foundation. Verse 19 gave us the materials, the the building blocks, the stones, and now verse 20 gives us the foundation. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Picture a first century building site. There is no basement. So the builder just gathers together a bunch of stones, selects the largest and flattest ones and lays them out. That's the floor and it's the foundation. Now the first one he lays is the cornerstone. It's the biggest and best one. It would be a huge stone. And it's how flat it is and how large it is determines the lie of the floor and the angle of the corner is going to determine the lie of the walls. It's a huge, significant stone. It's the first one laid. Now, obviously, you wouldn't pick a little bitty stone to do that. You'd pick a great big one because the larger, por- the larger portion of the floor and the larger portion of the walls it forms, the easier your job is and the sturdier the building is going to be. How is this new house built? With we the stones resting on Christ himself as the massive cornerstone, the one who determines the foundation and the walls. He is the place of prom- he's in the place of prominence because he is first, because he is foremost. It's his body after all. He's the head. He's God come in the flesh. It's natural that he would assume the primary place, the place of first importance. But notice that as Paul tells this analogy here, as he sets this metaphor here, Christ is in the prominent place, but Jesus is not the entire foundation. Now I think why this is becomes clear when we get a handle on the terms apostle and prophet, what those mean and how those two offices can interact with Jesus to form this foundation. So let's briefly look at those two words. Apostle. Essentially the ones called as apostles, whether they be the original twelve, the apostle Paul, or other New Testament lesser apostles, 
all of those apostles were generally concerned with the same thing. They were called ones. That's what the word literally means. They were divinely called ones, set aside and tasked with the job of establishing, of planting actually, and then establishing and building up the beginning of the church. That was their main job. And for that end, they were given authority to rule, and they were given revelation to teach. That's what the apostles were. They were unique. The term prophet requires a bit more explanation. Some have made the connection here in this verse between the prophets here and Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah. And in one way, that's kind of natural. Because it talks about all of the saints here, saints from the old as well as saints from the new, and it's kind of natural to see the saints of the past with their prophets and the saints of the present with their apostles joined together, centered on Christ. That makes a kind of natural picture, makes a good bit of sense. However, I think that the phrase apostle and prophets, apostles and prophets, as used here in Ephesians, is pointing us in a little different direction. Look down, if you will, into the next chapter at verses 4 and 5, particularly verse 5. Notice there that the mystery of Christ was not made known in the past. Verse 5. But now it has been revealed to the apostles and prophets. Now, as in during the time of Paul, not during the time of the Old Testament. Then turn ahead to chapter 4, verse 11. You'll notice there that it said that Christ gave to the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. There's those two words again, same words, same order. These apostles then were given to the church in the time of Paul. And in the time of Paul, they were given revelation to teach about the previously unknown mystery of Christ. I conclude then that these prophets who formed the foundation with Christ in verse 20 of chapter 2 are not actually Old Testament prophets. Rather, they are New Testament, New Covenant prophets. They've been gifted and called to communicate divine revelation at that time. We see them operating throughout the pages of the New Testament, such as the prophet Agabus is in Acts 21, when he says, Thus saith the Holy Spirit. That sounds rather prophet-like to me. And he proceeds to give to Paul an accurate, predictive message. He's acting like a prophet. The apostles and prophets, then, are filling specific foundational roles during the first century that relate to planting, establishing, building up, and transmitting God's new revelation to these people. They were significant people. They were the human means that God used to do this beginning work in the church. Christ had begun that work. When he came to the earth in a body, he began the work. He, he is the risen and exalted Christ who's still the center of their message. He's the encouragement for their heart. He's, he's the power behind their effectiveness in ministry. He still is the cornerstone. He is the foundational piece of the foundation. But he's not the whole foundation. When Paul tells the, this metaphor here, in some way he tells it so that he will also highlight these apostles and prophets. We saw what they were, but I still kind of want to ask, why does he want to highlight them? 
And I think it's because he wants to remind his readers about what they must rest on if they want to be sure that they are part of the true house of God. They must rest on Jesus to be sure. But you know, you can walk out the door and there are all kinds of different opinions about who and what Jesus was. What are we to believe? What are we to rest on? What are we to build on? What are we to build with the apostles and prophets? Rest on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Not on those who today may or may not be gifted as apostles and prophets. Depending on what you think about whether or not that gift exists today, there may or may not be apostles and prophets today. But those folks, if they exist, are not who Paul is talking about here in this verse. In this word picture that Paul has developed for us, the foundational apostles and prophets are those back in the day of Paul. The foundation has already been laid and the building is well underway. No building is continually laying the foundation. You lay the foundation and then you build on it. And that's what's happened here. Any apostle or prophet today, anyone, is merely another potential building block in the building. Merely another potential stone who, along with you and me, needs to be judged against, judged by the original apostles and prophets and their teaching and their message about Christ. And God has preserved that teaching for us. This is the important step here. Get this. God has preserved the teaching of the original apostles and prophets for us in the inerrant text of the New Testament. It's an important point. Follow that through. The foundation of the church has already been laid and is permanently established. No person today stands in the same place as those apostles and prophets. The successor to them is not another group It's not another lineage of men. The successor to those original apostles and prophets is the written word of the apostles and prophets. It alone is the final judge of doctrine and prophecy because it alone is the God-inspired and God-preserved record of their teaching. It alone determines today if one is in fact building onto the true church or if one is building an entirely different church based on an entirely different foundation. God's new house has a specific foundation, one specific foundation, the first century apostles and prophets and Christ the cornerstone, their message preserved for us in the Bible. Turn your hearts towards the new house of God and its foundation, the Scripture. That's what we rest on, that alone. That is what we build on. That's how we judge all further claims of any individual and of any group. Any individual or any group that claims to be the church of God today must rest on that original foundation. It must. We take any coming claims and we hold them up against the scripture and we judge them all. That's the way we have to do this. Do they hold to the teaching of the apostles and prophets as recorded in the Bible alone? Do they proclaim the biblical Jesus? Do they proclaim the biblical gospel? Do they proclaim the biblical church? Do they or do they not? It is not the Bible plus some tradition. It is not the Bible plus some other book. It is the Bible alone. God's true new house has one foundation, 
the Bible alone and the Bible's sole message. Salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That alone is the specific foundation of God's true new house. We must turn our hearts towards it. We must become people of that book. The new house is built of a specific people and it is built on a specific foundation. Now for the third specification. God's new house has a specific purpose. God's new house has a specific purpose. In verse 21, we see in Christ, this whole structure, this house is joined together. It's growing. Paul's grammar here is actually emphasizing the continuing ongoing building process that this new house is engaged in. God is the builder and he's building with a purpose in mind. Let's see that at the end of verse 21 and on into verse 22. This whole structure, this house in Christ, notice that he's the cornerstone and he's also the realm in which all this building happens. You might say that he's the cornerstone of the foundation he is the worksite, he is the contractor, and he is all the labor. He's everything. Christ is central in this passage. He's building it up. It's in the continual, ongoing process of being joined together, and the result is that it continually grows into a holy temple in Christ. That's the purpose there. Right there. God is working, building us together, making us into a holy temple. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God. His very presence is in and among us. God used to dwell in the tabernacle. But then Solomon built the temple. The tabernacle came down and when Solomon finished the temple, the glory of the Lord came into the Holy of Holies and he dwelt there in the inner room inside of the temple complex. That's where God was. But the law and its worship system and its temple has actually been torn down and now God is building a new temple from you and me built together on the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone, with Christ as the realm of the building, and Christ as the power behind the building. God fashions a new holy temple in Christ. And then amongst us, His church, He comes and He dwells in glory by His Spirit. In other places, yes, we individually are described as the temple of God, but not here. Here it is all of us collectively together. We are being put together to be the temple. He's talking about the universal church and as application of that, us, the local church. That's who we are. We're being built together to be a place where God can dwell. Think about that for a second. That which was lost in the Garden of Eden, the presence of God with His people, that which was lost there in that garden was, in a way, reacquired under the law in the Old Testament. God dwelt in the midst of His people as they traveled and then as they built the temple. He was in their midst. And if you wanted to go into the presence of God, you went up to Jerusalem, to the temple. And if you were Jewish, you could actually enter into the outer courts. 
And if you were a Levite, you could go in a, a little further yet. And if you were of the sons of Aaron, a little further still. And if you were the one high priest, on one day per year, you could actually go into that Holy of Holies and be in the presence of God. It's a remarkable thing. I can't imagine what it would have been, what it would have been like to have been high priest, to go in there once per year. That presence of God was reacquired under that old system. Sort of. For some. But when Christ died on the cross, he abolished the law. And the curtain that kept everyone out of that Holy of Holies was torn open. And access was granted to all through one new way, through faith in Christ. You can come into his presence. And the way that is done according to this passage is come to the church. It's a bit unusual. To come into God's presence, you've got to come to the church. Obviously, he's not talking about the church building. I think there is something to be said for physical structures or physical sanctuaries where we go and experience God in new and different ways. Something to be said for that, but not here. Here, he's talking about a building, put that in quotes if you like, a new house, a new temple, but it is the people. It is us, together. We are being built together to be the new house. Where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is among them. This brings a couple of application points to my mind. Do you remember how last week we saw that verse 18 teaches that the good news of the gospel is that you and I get God back? You saw that in verse 18? Well, put that concept together with this morning's concept about God building a new house and God dwelling amongst that house. I point out that this follows immediately on verse 18. What do you think this says about the concept of Lone Ranger Christianity? You know, the kind of Christianity where it's just me all by myself, kind of riding across the prairie doing just fine. The kind that says, I have a personal relationship with Jesus and therefore I don't need to have any personal relationships with any of you. I've got Jesus, I'm okay. What does this say about that conception of Christianity? God dwells in the church. Yes, God dwells in you personally too. Yes, praise the Lord for that. But uniquely, there are many ways that you will never experience God. You will never experience all of God and all God has for you if you never come and get connected to the church, this body, this people. Without the relationships of the church, including all the hard ones, without service and sacrifice in the church, without being a benefactor of other people's gifts in the church, without a consistent place to discover and hone your own gifts so that you can be a blessing to them in this church, without all those things, there are ways you will never experience God. You can be saved, yes, but there are many, many things you're missing. You will never fully grow up in holiness, into the holy temple. You'll never experience that fully if you do it by yourself. God intends for you to be a part of a body. He's building a community where he can dwell by the Spirit. That has ramifications for us in how we view this community. 
There's a lot coming up in Ephesians about the church. That's actually why I selected this book to preach first. I want to talk a lot about the church. It has ramifications for how we view those people sitting here next to you and in front of you and behind you. But it also has ramifications for those who are not yet believers. It says to them also that uniquely, here, in a healthy, holy, humble, growing body, uniquely here, the non-believer can also meet God. A few years ago, seven freshmen at the University of Wisconsin in Madison experienced this truth. They were a part of a campus ministry, and they were part of that ministry in spite of their large group meetings, which these seven freshmen thought were kind of geeky and a little bit uncomfortable to bring non-Christian friends to, but they came anyway because it was the only thing going, and they were Christians. In their opinion, also, the small groups were a little awkward, and the social events were kind of cliquish. They just couldn't see how they could bring any non-Christians any of this stuff. But they were stuck. It was their group. They didn't know what to do. So these seven met together and just began to pray. And after some time, one of them said, you know, the only thing that our group does that I find myself to be remotely attractive is this prayer group. Here we are real and honest, genuine Christians. I'm going to bring my non-Christian friend, let's call him Bill, I'm going to bring my non-Christian friend Bill to this prayer meeting. And the other six, whoa, 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 whoa. I think that would significantly change this prayer meeting if we had a non-Christian here with us, wouldn't it? But he was resolute. He won them over, and the next week, Bill came. Their prayer meeting with Bill, the New Age, Marxist, atheist, pot-smoking, drug and alcohol-using student that he was, with that Bill present, their prayer meeting began. And at first, it was a little awkward. They were probably kind of praying more to Bill than to God. But they got over that, and they began to earnestly pray, earnestly talk to God. Heartfelt, genuine prayer. They prayed for the campus and for its welfare. They confessed their own sin. They prayed for things going on on the campus. They, they humbly worshipped just one guitar and six voices. They even prayed for Bill and for his welfare and for his salvation in his presence. And eventually it ended and they broke up. And Bill practically tackled two of the guys after the meeting. What was that? He wanted to know. And these two guys were kind of, uh, what was what? I don't even believe in God, but God was for sure in that room. What happened? They were a little taken aback, but then over the next hour they began to explain what they thought had happened and they led Bill to Christ. In the course of a couple hours, Bill had gone from atheist, pot-smoking, whatever, to Christian. What happened? Well, in the words of the man who first recorded this story and who was present at the meeting, in a group of struggling, authentic, accepting freshmen, here's the important phrase, who had learned to be people of the presence in a group of struggling, authentic, accepting freshmen who had learned to be people of the presence, Bill encountered the presence of God in an authentic, spirit-filled community. How are we doing at that? 
How are we doing at becoming a people of the presence? God's purpose is that He would form us into a people of the presence, into a new holy house where His presence by His Spirit sits heavy on us, sits heavy among us, and it's almost palpable. You can come in here and you can just about taste Him. How are we doing at that? That's His intention for us individually and corporately, and it can happen. We can become a people of His presence. You can become a person of His presence. If God would give you eyes to see the greatness of His glory and the marvelous, stunning work that He has done for you in Christ, if He would give you eyes to see that, heart eyes to grasp it and be grasped by it, you and we can become people of the presence. It's possible. Pray, pray, pray for it for yourself, for me, for us. It's what He wants. It's what He intends. The church is to be the house of His presence. God's new house, you and me and us, built on the one foundation of the first century apostles and prophets with Christ Himself as the cornerstone. Turn your hearts towards that house. Give yourself to it. Give your time, give your heart, give your money, which will show where your heart is. Give yourself to it. Give yourself to the Lord, who is its foundation, who builds it, and who indwells it. I want to be a person of the presence. I hope you do too. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.